This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me at joshuaritter.com. We are recording this on Friday, March 17th, 2023. In this week's episode, last-minute motions by Lori Vallow, the mother accused of killing her two children as her trial nears its starting date. Also, the jury's extended deliberations in the case of a murdered hip-hop star. And finally, more updates on the Rust on-set shooting as special prosecutor in the case has stepped down. Today, we are joined by Franz Borghardt, a former prosecutor turned defense attorney and legal commentator you can catch on Court TV and many other outlets. Franz, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me, guys. I love Sidebar. I'm, I'm flattered and humbled to finally be on here, so I'm excited to have a conversation with you. Oh, well, thank you very much for the kind words. Um, before we jump into these cases, I know you've got a lot of thoughts on these that I'm very curious to hear. Could you tell us just briefly about your your background and what your current practice is? So I started as a judicial law clerk for a criminal court in the state of Louisiana. Then I jumped into the fun job of being a public defender representing poor folk for about three years. I then turned to the dark side, depending on which side you're on, um, (laughs) and was a felony prosecutor uh, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana for about a year. And then I went into private practice. Most of what I do... My practice is pretty much a criminal defense practice, and most of what I do is federal uh, criminal defense with a, a good amount of state as well. So uh, in addition to all that, somehow, some way, I got got into this legal commentary uh, gig. And so for some reason, people think that my opinion on things sometimes matters. And so I do that at a local uh, and a national uh, level. Well, fantastic. And we know that you follow all these places uh, very closely. So we're really interested to hear your thoughts. So let's jump in. First, we're going to Boise, Idaho, where as the upcoming trial for the alleged doomsday killer, Lori Vallow draws near, an Idaho judge is expected to rule on several important motions leading up to jury selection in the case. Lori Vallow and her husband, Chad Daybell, stand accused of the murder of Lori's two children. This is just so heartbreaking to me. Joshua, age seven, and Tylee, 16, as well as Chad's former wife, Tammy Daybell. Valor's case has has seen numerous delays before trial, including multiple mental health evaluations. At one point, she was even declared unfit to stand trial. Then she was 
found fit, and that's why we're proceeding to trial. Um, and a recent move by Vallo and Chad Baybill to have their trials separated, which is also interesting. Jury selection is set to begin in the case on April 3rd. Leading up to the start of the trial, the defense has filed several significant motions in limne. In a motion to compel Vallo's legal team has uh, asked for all statements made by her husband, Chad Daybell, to be turned over by prosecutors. Now get this, Valo's defense has received over 3,000 recordings of in-custody visits with Chad. However, Chad continues to make phone calls and statements while he is at the Fremont County Jail. The defense has also filed a motion to exclude evidence that was allegedly uh, disclosed last minute by prosecutors. A judge ruled that all evidence must be submitted prior to February 27th. However, Valo's attorney claimed they received 5,000 pages of evidence, along with 3,000 phone calls and hours of video on the day of the deadline. Most notably, Valo's defense has also filed a motion to dismiss the death penalty due to what they are calling cumulative errors in the case, citing the media coverage and public knowledge of the case, along with uh, limited time for mitigation specialists to weigh in on the case. These issues must be resolved prior to Lori's trial, slated to begin in April. And a case that has reportedly already cost the Idaho taxpayers over $3.6 million. All right. A lot to digest here, Franz, but uh, just jump right in. And if you could first explain for viewers or, and listeners the importance of these motions in limine and what they are. So the motions in limine set the tone for the entire trial, right? Knowing what's coming in, what's not coming in, what's going to be excluded and, and generally speaking, both sides want to know because it structures everything. It's, it's the foundation of your opening statement for your, your witnesses. And so there is a, a solace, Joshua, that, that comes with knowing, hey, what's coming in, what's not coming in. Um, more particularly in this case, uh, when you start having massive dumpings, and that's going to be yeah. the, word, the word I use of, of jailhouse calls, jailhouse video, whatever, um, it's like a it's like a haystack. Yeah. It's not uncommon for for the prosecuting entity to say, "Hey, look, here's three thousand, here's five thousand calls. We may only use an hour of them." Well, right. the defense still has to go through them for two reasons. One, is there anything in, in, exculpatory in there that may help their case? And two, you know, the things that the prosecution wants to use, they need to have context to them in in the bigger picture. So, motion in limine to exclude past deadline or on deadline well the remedy there is going to be probably and i know this is going to come to a shock to a lot of people a continuance right yeah. uh judges are more apt in my experience more apt to say you know what i'm not going to exclude this evidence i want the jury i want the community to have the whole entire story so defense i'm going to give you more time i doubt that it's going to be an exclusion i doubt that it's going to be an exclusion of evidence um 5, pages well you know we're, we're hearing about that, but what does that mean? Is it 5,000 actual pages of discovery, or is it like sometimes you get a report and it's 20 introductory pages and then two pages of actual narrative? Well, the response to that is, well, they still have to go through the 5,000 pages regardless. Right. Um, so I think it's going to, I think what we're telegraphing here is a continuance of the dial uh, in lieu of suppressing or excluding these, these pieces of evidence. A, yeah. An alternative. An alternative might be for the judge to look at the state and say, you know what? All this evidence, you need to tell them what you're going to use. You need to narrow these these recordings down, tell them what you're going to use. But if I'm a crafty defense attorney, I'm going to say, well, judge, I appreciate that. But 
that doesn't solve the bigger issue that I have an obligation to listen to all this. Right. Um, so delay, delay, delay. One of the best friends of a defense attorney. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I, I think a judge is probably going to be inclined to say, no, we're not going to exclude it. Um, I'll give you the time that you need to go through through all of it. But you're absolutely right. The the stewards of the evidence is the defense, right? They can't just say, oh, well, the, the prosecution looked through it and they're only going to use these certain calls. What if there are other calls that are exculpatory or other calls that might right. be helpful to them? They have to. They, they're, especially in a case of this magnitude where death penalty may be on, well, uh, a, 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 you know, an option. They have to go through all of this stuff. My question to you, too, is, um, you know, it sounds like this was not a surprise issue. And the judge gave them this deadline of turning over everything. And I cannot, I find it hard to believe that they uh, uh, were only able to get their, themselves together on the day of to turn over all this evidence. It, to me, it seems a little bit like gamesmanship. I don't want to cast aspersions, but it just, if I were the defense in this case, I'd be very upset at having all of this dumped on me, to use your word, at the last minute. What, what are your thoughts? Well, so a deadline's a deadline, right? So I, right. I'm not, I'm not going to be hypocritical. I like waiting until the last minute sometimes to do what I need to do. Sure. Uh, so the question becomes: Is the deadline a deadline in so much as, hey, you need to have it turned over by this date, and nobody anticipated it being this voluminous, this much evidence, this much uh, discovery. That being said, it certainly seems reasonable based on the. The, the quantity and, and, and the and the scope of what we're talking about, it certainly seems reasonable with a straight face to look at the judge and say, judge, look, this is a death penalty case. You know, you haven't yet ruled on our death penalty motion yet to exclude the death penalty, but this is a death penalty case. And, and judge, how many times do you, and, and they may not say this, Josh, but how many times you want to try this case? Right. You know, how many times, how, how many times, I mean, that is the trade-off of seeking the death penalty, right? Is it it increases the stakes for everything, and it makes us all a little bit more skittish, and 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 we give a little bit more time than we would. And yes, the defense has every right to be like, "Hey, what the heck? You know, you guys, you guys knew, you had to have known, right?" Now, flip side is when we start talking about jailhouse calls, um, I can't tell you how many times I've had clients where I'm like, "Hey, they're listening. Hey, they're listening. Yeah. Hey, they're listening." And they still produce, and I use the word produce because it's like they're on a film, like a movie set. They're just keep, they keep making new uh, episodes of, of what we're going to talk about on, on prison calls. So that is not totally shocking to me. I, I, I think more disappointing uh, as a defense attorney. But that being said, 3,000 calls. How many minutes is that? How many hours yeah. is that? You know, is, yeah. are we going to start? I mean, there's only so many hours in a day. And so the reality is, and so your viewers know this, and, and I feel this is pertinent. A crafty prosecutor is going to say, well, judge, I, I know I have an obligation under constitutional case law to give them anything that's exculpatory. But again, the defense can't rely on that. The defense is like, well, you know, I appreciate that they have that obligation, judge, but I also have an obligation to make sure I go through each and every little morsel of discoverable evidence that that has been tendered to me so that I can make sure that I can represent my client to the best of my ability. Um, coupled with that, another thing we haven't even talked about is what if the client wants to listen to each and every one of these calls, which is her right. right. It's her right to look at the evidence. 
you know, I don't know about you, but trying to show a client who's incarcerated uh, video or jailhouse calls that takes, you know, 3,000 calls, maybe, maybe I don't know, 2,000 hours. I, yeah. I'm just throwing a number out there. Right. Somebody has to sit with her and prisons don't like, you know, let's just be candid. Prisons don't let defense attorneys just have free, free reign of their facilities. So it, it, it requires some navigation. And I think that that may be a basis for a continuance. My client has a right to look at all this and judge how are we possibly going to prepare for trial and let her look at all this at the same time. Yeah, really excellent point that I had not thought of, but she does. She has an absolute right to hear and see all of the evidence produced against her personally herself. Interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about the death penalty in this case. And I'm, I'm not trying to ask you to weigh in on your, your politics on the whole thing, but I, I am curious, first of all, if you believe that the death penalty is reserved for the most serious of crimes, this I think would absolutely qualify. I mean, this is just heinous stuff to, to murder two children and perhaps the murder also of his ex-wife. Awful, awful stuff. But sprinkled into that is this element of weird beliefs in in the in doomsday coming and and that's kind of what may have uh brought this all on and the fact that she has been in and out of kind of mental health um crises do you think that plays a role or should play a role in the judge's mind in making the determination whether or not to hold her responsible for the greatest penalty that we have so i so first absolutely the type of case that has those what we call in the business the aggravating circumstances the aggravators that would rise a case under state law to a death penalty status now and and would allow a jury to find for a death penalty that being said the mental health components of this case may be the thing that saves her in the event that she's convicted um jurors for for good reason jurors sometimes uh, don't like putting people with clear and evident mental health issues that may play a part in the case. And, and I and I'm not talking about a, a sanity defense. I'm talking right. about hey, but for the fact that she's she's and, and I don't mean this insensitively cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> she might not have gotten to this point in life. Right. Um, and, and, and look, it just just to remind your viewers, unlike the guilt phase, one juror, one juror in a death penalty case can say, I think this is a reason sufficient for mitigation such that I'm going to vote life. And that's it. Right. One life vote is enough for it to be. So I, I think it's I think the and mental health. You're good. Not, not to interrupt you, but just to, to, to close that loop. If one juror does find that I'm not going to vote for death, it's not like we have a hung jury it defaults to life. So that would be the Correct. decision right there that she would get life without parole. Sorry, please continue. Correct. And so, well, I don't know if it's appropriate under the Idaho state law for the judge to make that unilateral decision. Um, they filed the motion. So I'm, I'm guessing there is something that maybe they can hang their hat on with regard to the mental health components, which I like as an argument, right? Um, mm -hmm. Generally, and, and, and look, I've been on both sides of this. I've handled murder cases where we, we had to decide whether or not we were going to pursue the death penalty. And as a defense attorney, I, I did a brief stint as a capital defense attorney. Um, generally, a prosecutor in looking at the full scope and the full story of the defendant will think about, OK, well, what about this mental health component? Is this going to be an obstacle to me 
ultimately getting this defendant put to death if I get a death penalty verdict. Um, and and I, I think I think there's enough weirdness to this. And I say weirdness in the sense of the, 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 the weirdness of the entire factual circumstances of you have this cult-like situation, you have this heinous crime, um, you have people that ordinarily, you know, this, this ma- I'm going to use the word massacre, people that on their surface would not be the kind of people you would think that would do this. Yeah. And it's just like, it's bizarre, weird. I think you have enough mental health issue here to where it would give anybody pause as to her, as to the death penalty. I don't know that the the publicity is not going. I don't know that the publicity is enough to take death yeah. penalty off the table. And I and I think candidly, a good death penalty jury selection process will ag- address that. Um, and if you can't get and if you can't get a veneer or veneer of of people sufficient to to impanel a, a jury, well then then you're talking about. Well, maybe we need to change venues. Maybe we need to move this to something else, or maybe we need to get jurors from outside of that. That's not going to be what what saves this woman in the event she's found guilty and in the event they vote vote death. The mental health, the mental health components, the 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 competent we call it competency in Louisiana. The the not being able to understand what go, goes on is going on, and the ability to assist counsel with her defense, and then her being restored. The question then becomes: Is well, you know. How do we measure restoration? How do we know that like she's restored today, but during the trial, something may not happen? And so we're clear, trials are highly traumatic, you know, stressful, very emotional situations for all parties, including the defendant. Um, You know, how are, you know, it it just, if I seem like I'm worked up on this is there's (laughs) just a, there's a pathway to her ultimately not getting a death sentence. And, And I get, I get, I get skittish only because of the quantity of money and the resources that the state of Idaho are going to use. And that's not me being against the death penalty. That's just, I like being a good, good fiscal responsible human being that if you're going to spend millions and millions of dollars to accomplish something, you want to make sure that the bridge that you're trying to bridge over a body of water is going over a river and not a a puddle. So I I just, I, I think there's a lot of issues for penalty phase for this defendant. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting stuff. It's a lot of fascinating issues in this case. And it's just over the backdrop of, again, what I can only be described as just a horrible, horrible um, tragedy to have lost these two young children and and his ex-wife as well. Anyhow, we, we will continue to watch it and keep track of the developments in that case. Let's turn now to Fort Lauderdale, Florida where after seven days of deliberations, a jury is still contemplating their verdict in the murder trial of hip-hop artist XXXTentacion, also known as Jesse Onfroy. Michael Boatwright, along with Derek Williams and Trayvon Newsom, are all charged with first-degree murder and armed robbery in the rapper's death. Onfroy was shot in his BMW at Riva Motorsports in Fort Lauderdale after a black SUV pulled in front of the vehicle, blocking the BMW's exit. Two men then approached the vehicle before firing several shots into the driver's side window, striking Onfroy. 
The masked assailants then grabbed a Louis Vuitton bag from the victim, that which contained $50,000 that the victim had recently withdrawn from a bank. The perpetrators allegedly posted on social media following the killing with pictures of them holding large amounts of money from the robbery. A fourth man involved in the robbery, Robert Allen, testified against the other three defendants after accepting a plea to the charge of second-degree murder. Allen testified that the defendants went out that day with the intention of committing a robbery and targeted the raptor after the rapper pardon me after seeing him at Riva Motorsports. All defendants face mandatory life sentences if convicted. However, the jury must decide separately on each man's fate, allowing any combination of the defendants to be convicted, acquitted, or hung on the charges. So according to uh, Kathy Rusan at Law and Crime, this is one of the five longest deliberations covered by that network. Franz, what is your take on this? Why do you think it's taking them so long to come to a verdict in this case? So my assumption is always the longer the deliberation, the better it sits for the defense. Kind of um, kind of the 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 I don't know where that comes from, but that it does seem to be sort of the 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 logic that you find out uh, throughout prosecutors and defense offices. So so the mentality becomes the mentality becomes is if the state proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt, it should be obvious. Right. It yeah. shouldn't be something that takes seven days. Um, and, and look, I'm envious. Seven I'd be happy if juries in Louisiana deliberated for more than a day. Most of our juries, <laughs> we're talking about four, five hours for a, a murder wow. case. Uh, death penalty, maybe a little bit more, uh, but we just don't have that it, we're in, in Louisiana. That being said, seven days, if I'm the prosecutor, I'm I'm getting a little skittish. I'm getting a little uh, nervous about what that might mean. Now, yeah. what could it mean? It could mean that there's some holdouts um, in in. And again, uh, under Florida law and under most states, it has to be unanimous, right? right? So there may be one, two, three people who are saying, hey, I think X, I think he's guilty, or I think he's not guilty. And the other members of the jury are trying to convince them, or or it may be a situation where they, they just can't reach a decision, but the judge hasn't, hasn't either made a decision about that or hasn't been approached by the jury, because remember, the jury is going to make it. If they can't make a decision, the jury is going to tell the judge at some point, hey, we, we can't make a decision if they haven't done that yet. If the jury's just deliberating and they haven't said, well, judge, we don't think we can't. We don't think we can't. We can come to a decision if it's really just judge. We're still talking about stuff. Well, that's totally different. Right. Yeah. So, like I said, if I'm if I'm the state of Florida right now, I'm I'm not liking any no. part of this seven no. day. You, you, it, you are not sleeping well over the last seven right, nights. No, right. no, yeah. no prosecutor is sitting there saying, I want to make the the land record for longest deliberations. <laughs> you know, that's not. And look, at seven day and, and keep in mind as a backdrop, I'm assuming this this jury is sequestered. So they're not going home. They're not they're not with their loved ones. Um, after seven days, I would imagine that's getting a little old for them. Um and the fact that they're still cranking away, maybe they're really, maybe they're really biting into something that is a issue in this case. And again, that goes back to, well, are they biting over something that may be reasonable doubt? Are they arguing about something that may be a reasonable doubt that could lead to the acquittal of one defendant, multiple defendants? I just don't know the answer to that. And, yeah. and, and to be candid, the longer this goes on, the closer we move to that magical phrase, mistrial. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, you make an interesting point that I wanted to kind of flush out a little bit. But 
and it, that's how it works here in California, at least. If the jurors don't make a peep, then we assume they're working and we just kind of let them do do their stuff. It, it, I, I can't even think of an example where I've thought where a judge has pulled them out after they've been deliberating for several days just to be like, are you guys at an impasse? You know what? It, it, it would seem to me to be inappropriate to kind of signal to them hey, you better be coming to a verdict here pretty soon or declare yourselves hung. So usually the judges are hands off and let them work as long as they're not uh, saying that they're hung. So it doesn't sound like they, these these jurors have given any indication of that, but you you got to wonder what, I, I mean, human nature is that it does not take you seven days to come to your your personal beliefs on something. So I can't imagine, are we, do you, Imagine that we're seeing people being persuaded from one side to the other over the course of the seven days, and that's why they feel like they need to put in more work. It just it's um, it's funny so, to me because you don't usually see it in cases that are kind of this straightforward. And I don't mean that the case is simple, but I mean we're not talking about a three month long uh, paper case that involved all right. sorts of documents that they need to review. We're talking about a, a shooting, a murder that took place over, you know, one afternoon and they've got all their suspects. And here you go. Here's the evidence. Sorry. Go ahead. So if you told if you told me this was a federal white collar Medicare fraud case. Right. And that, and that they were deliberating for five days, I'd be like, yeah, that's a paper case that that happens. Yeah. They're just getting um, warmed up. Right. So so normally to, to your comment, normally the way we see a, a jury tell the judge we can't come to a decision is someone will write a note. The foreman will write a note. Hey, what if we cannot come to a decision? Right. Question mark. That's how I've always seen it. Um, what I would say is I live in this world where I want to believe the movie 12 Angry Men is a thing, right? That, it, that, that you really can have a jury go from one diametric 11 to one all the way back over to it to the opposite 11 to one not guilty i want to believe that that fictional world exists i think what this means is either there's one two maybe three holdouts who have dug in like ticks and maybe they're just they're they're going back and forth back and forth and it may be that look sometimes they respect each other enough to where they're willing to keep working on it and listening um we think that they get and again, I say we think because we're not back there, right? There's most jurisdictions don't tell the jury this is how you deliberate. You know, the judge may say, be respectful. I may say in my voir dire or closing, hey, be respectful, honor each other's decisions. But we don't have a camera back there like filming right. them to determine how they're doing stuff. So it may be it may really be that that they're they're You know, hey, this one or two or three of them has an opinion they're really going back and forth of it but they're really respecting each other or it could be that they really can't come to a decision yet but they're not giving up yeah i like it i like it but it also it's like i want to get my box of popcorn and 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 see what's going to happen because yeah at, at what point does the judge now here's the other issue under that jurisdictional law at what point does the judge pull them in and say hey guys are y'all okay Right. You know, I don't mind giving you I don't mind giving you a cot and three squares of square meals a day. But I mean, like, like, what at what point here? does the judge? Yeah. yeah. What at what point does the judge intercede? And then does that intercession unprompted to by a jury give an issue for one or both sides? Because at See. that point is the judge, impl- you know. Yeah. I, See, I, I think it would. I, I think it would be the judge kind of signaling to the jurors in some some manner that, hey, you're taking too long, which might be enough right. of a signal for them to go, oh, well, then we're hung. 
And that's problematic. But the more we're thinking about this, I, I think you might be right in that I can't imagine that it's, you know, a 10 to 2 vote and it's been that way for seven days. I imagine right. if there are holdouts, the holdouts are just saying, I don't know. I'm not, I, I can't decide. Not that, well, I believe he's not guilty or I believe he's guilty and I'm just going to stick with it, but I'll let you try to persuade me either way. It's got to be that they're just saying, I don't know. I can't, I can't decide which way to vote because otherwise it just wouldn't make any sense for them to be sitting there deadlocked in a vote for seven days. But who knows? We'll, well continue and, to watch it. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, and, and look, this is the organic nature of trials, Josh, is that we're talking about it. And in real time, the verdict can come in. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, I think, I think it will. It is probably, Friday. Jurors yeah. like Friday yeah, verdicts. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, so my prediction is it's going to be today. Yeah. That's my prediction. And yeah. it's, and it's because it is Friday. Um, yeah. And that at some point it's like, okay, well, we, it's, we've given a good, Nobody's going to say that this jury hasn't tried to come to a verdict no. at this point. So, no. yeah, um, yeah, I, I'm curious to see what happens. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Well, we might have an answer by the time this episode comes out, but if not, we'll continue to watch it. Let's turn to our last case out of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Andrea Reeb, the special prosecutor in the 2021 onset shooting of Helena Hutchins, has stepped down from the case, making her decision official last Tuesday. According to Reeb, she found it best to remove herself from the case in order to disavow any, and this is a quote, questions about me serving, my serving as a legislator and prosecutor to cloud the real issues at hand. This is the latest in a series of controversies with the prosecution after opting to charge actor Alec Baldwin and armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed with involuntary manslaughter following the fatal rust shooting. An attorney for Baldwin had previously filed a motion to have Reeb disqualified as a special prosecutor back in February, alleging that elected officials' involvement was unconstitutional due to her position in New Mexico's House of Representatives. Baldwin has indicated he intends to go to court on the charges. The next court date is scheduled for May 3rd for a preliminary hearing. Um. Uh, friends, are you shocked? By, I, I'm shocked by this. What are your thoughts on this? So the whole point behind getting a special prosecutor is generally to have someone that's not in the weeds, uh, someone that is a, a, in the seat of neutrality, uh, that is generally a very qualified, either former prosecutor or a very qualified litigator who can just take over this one case and handle it. Right. right? Um it, it's it's sometimes it's a we we sometimes we see them because it's a we don't want there to be a impropriety sense going on. Um, what's interesting to me is is that nobody thought about this conflict of of and I call it a separations a separation of powers conflict. He's the, the special prosecutor is a legislator and a prosecutor at the same time, which is an executive branch. Nobody thought that that may be an issue. Um, and generally, or, it's or not. sorry to cut you off, or they did, or they did look into it and decided, hey, there's nothing on the books that says this is wrong. Right. We, we've run this by some ethics attorneys and we think this is fine. But go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. I think that I think the bigger issue <clears throat> is I think Santa Fe didn't anticipate Alec Baldwin, who has probably more money than the both of us, uh, lawyering up to the level that he clearly has. And what's interesting is it's not a death penalty case. Right. So so the cost of his defense, while it's probably an hourly thing, 
the cost of his defense is not going to be the same kind of cost that it would be if he were on trial for his life. Um, it's a small enough felony to be serious, but not a big enough felony that's going to derail the rest of his life, you know? Right. So, so I think they under, they underestimated what they were going to be dealing with and their response in the media has been this level of whininess about yeah. it. Um, like, Talk about that look, because that is something that's really gotten to me. So when I start hearing, so look, I can go back to being a prosecutor tomorrow. I, I tell people all the time, I'm a mercenary. I, I, I'm not a true believer. <laughs> I love doing, I love the litigation of criminal justice, but I, I can do it tomorrow. But when I start hearing the side of this of the aisle who has all the resources and he gets right. to make all the po- the power decisions when they start whining about how unfair it is that someone has a very effective and qualified team of attorneys my knee jerk is is well now you know what it feels like to be a poor person that can't afford all that and how unfair and, and that they think it is yeah but candidly what did they think was gonna happen josh right. i mean come on it was never this case was never a a lock stock and two smoking barrels case no pun intended this case was always going to be hey we've never really seen this prosecuted before these kind of negligent homicide cases are not easy they're right. not easy the actor has a defense there is a clear defense because they are prosecuting the the the, the gun armorer with him so there is a defense of Hey, look, I'm an actor. I may be the producer, but we hire this expert so that I don't have to worry about this kind of stuff. That's kind of their whole purpose is to hand me a gun and tell me it's okay so I can go act. Yeah, I I am unsure. I am unsure the zeal (laughs) that brought them to prosecute him. I am unsure why they are being as whiny as and, and look, I'm saying that fully aware of what I'm saying. They are being whiny. Yeah, um, they are talking about, you know, when they decide not to do something or they dismiss a a facet of, of the of the indictment or, or, or charging document saying, well, you know, we're not interested in burning lots of, of money and enriching the, the defense team. Well, I mean, come on, you guys, yeah. you guys did something by instituting yeah. prosecution. And by the way, anytime you make a mistake, he has a constitutional right to have that legal team challenge. Yeah. And, and yeah. test what you're doing. So, I mean, I. I think it's disingenuous. Um, well, I think it's, it's offensive. I'll go. I'll go a little yeah. bit farther. I think it's offensive to say, "Oh, you guys are just racking up all these fees." You're trying to put my client in prison. I'm not right. going to apologize for anything that we do to try to defend him. I had a case where it, it carried on for a very long time, but we had filed stacks of um, motions, and all of them righteous, and we won a few of them. And I think you know, they, they, there was. We were not wasting time. We were we were doing what we felt needed to be done. And I remember at one point, the judge kind of referenced this pile of documents on her desk saying, you know, are we going to continue doing this? And I go, if you think I'm going to apologize for defending my client, absolutely not. That's what not just what I'm getting paid for, but this man, you're all trying to put this man in prison and I'm trying to do my best to keep him out of prison. I don't think Baldwin or his team or his quote unquote fancy lawyers have anything to apologize for. And I agree with you. It sounds whiny and offensive, especially coming from the government. They should they should be the adults in the room. So let's not mince words. Everybody in that room is getting paid. 
Yeah. And the fact that they're not getting paid as well as the private attorneys, my response to that is you ran for an office. You told the constituents, the people of Santa Fe, and by the way, Santa Fe is a beautiful, wonderful place. If you haven't gone to Santa Fe, but for this little blemish, it's a perfect, wonderful place to go. Um, <laughs> go to the downtown, great food. But for, but for the fact that they're bringing this, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So to me, it's like, well, you know, you started this fire, and now that they're trying to put the fire out, it's like, I, I just... I, I cannot wrap my brain around what I, I understand why they got a special prosecutor. The problem they're going to have now is, would you want to take this on as a special prosecutor? Right. Right. I mean, because because now a special prosecutor is going to have to either be a retired prosecutor who doesn't care about getting compensated, who's who not only doesn't care about getting compensated well, but is going to have to go head to head with what I assume to be some really good defense attorneys. I don't know the defense attorneys he has on his team, but I I said from day one, they're probably very, very good. The, the finest that money can buy. Yeah. Um, and what you get with good defense attorneys, heaven forbid, a good defense. So yeah. I don't know who they're going to find to be a special prosecutor. And, you know, part of the problem they have is, is they've doubled down. So when you double down, how do you get out of that? How do you, yeah. there's no safe haven for them to say, well, maybe we made a mistake and maybe we shouldn't move forward. It's going to be a trial. Who's going to try it now? Yeah. That, I so I, you bring me to my next question though, but you think it's going to end up in a trial. That's where, that's where I was going to ask is how do you think this thing plays out? You think it's going to trial? I, so unless they offer such a low level, and I don't know the, 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 the felony misdemeanor system there in New Mexico, but I would assume that they have some kind of responsive or some kind of lesser included charge that isn't a felony. If they were to offer that, at that point, I would be looking at my client and saying, now look, we can go to trial, we can fight all this, but they're offering you a misdemeanor. Yeah. And if the penalty is low enough to where you can do a, a, a best interest plea and say, judge, look, I'm not saying I did anything wrong, but this is in my best interest to do this. Well, then maybe then it wouldn't go to trial. Yeah. But I think that I think that I don't know what they're going to offer him that he would take at this point. Yeah. I mean, and 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 you're right. They're trying to put him in a human cage. This 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 felony. I said it's a low level felony, but let's let's not let's let's not beat around the bush. It's a felony that could carry jail time. Yeah, and, eighteen and months. I, I yeah, I assume. And, and look, I don't know about you, 18 months of jail for me would be a life-altering experience. I'm quite sure that it would be a life-altering experience for him as, a, as, as, as an individual, uh, as a Hollywood actor. So I just, I, I don't know what their, their escape route is. And that's why I think it may be a trial is, can they offer something lesser and still save face? I think they have to, it obviously has to be something with no custody time. And I think... I see it playing out as they offer him something. I, I, I like what you said, something where they can kind of spin it, save face, say we hold everybody accountable in this county. I don't care if you're a Hollywood producer or not, and something where he can kind of save face and say, like you said, this was in best interests. I want to put this behind me. You know, I'm, this is more about you know making sure her and her family are taken care of for this horrible, horrible tragedy, and everybody go on their way. But if they Ask for custody time. I think he says, "Okay, put twelve in the box. Let's see how you. Let's see if you can convince twelve people of this really novel kind of stretching of the 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 realms of the law to say that a person 
like myself, who's an actor who has never had a live gun handed to him on a set ever, you know, and he's, by the way, very long career that I imagine he's been handed guns to him on a set dozens of times. And he's going to say that now all of a sudden I'm responsible for this horrible tragedy that took place. I agree with you. I think it's got to be something good or, or he's, he, he takes his chances. And I wonder what I would like to dig into is in this jurisdiction, in New Mexico, in Santa Fe, how many do they have a diversion program? Is this something that normally is because in a lot of places around the country that have diversion programs and for the for the viewers, a diversion program is basically an alternative adjudication where you do some things, you jump through some hoops and ultimately the charges are dismissed on the back end. You're never convicted, but you show you show responsibility. There's a financial component to it. Um, there is a, hey, we're going to watch you for a little while. We're going to make sure that this is kind of a fluke thing. I would be willing to bet that in most jurisdictions that have diversion programs, that a negligent act of this magnitude would probably fall within that because we know that it's not a specific intent crime. We know that at the end of the day, this is a, at most, this is a reckless gross negligence kind of crime where he didn't want it to happen. So what are you, that's the other end of this is what are you really doing trying to put this guy away for, for, for 18 months? Like what is, what justice is accomplished by that? This is a great civil case. Correct. That's what I was going to say, especially too, because there still is a remedy in the civil courts to hold him responsible in a way that would at least, you know, make the family, not whole, but address the damages and loss that they have. I don't know if not every case needs to go through the criminal courts. So I agree right. with you. I don't. I, I. I. I think it was a stretch, and it's certainly a stretch to bring this this serious uh, of charge. I mean, if it were something like you know negligent handling or you know something along the lines of some sort of misdemeanor misconduct or something, but you know they're trying to say you 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 know this is a level of homicide. It's involuntary manslaughter, but it's a level of homicide, and they're trying to hold him responsible. So the biggest issue that this defendant has is that he is a famous actor. And I wonder I wonder how much of that played into, hey, we can't cut him a break because it's going to be perceived that he gets treated differently than everybody else. But by that, you're treating him differently than you would yep. everybody else. And so that's his biggest his biggest defect is that. Um, it's not a perfect human being. Nobody's a perfect human being. But I, I, at the end of the day, man, oh, man, if you're going to go after the king, make sure you kill him. And <laughs> and, and, and I, I think that is going to be the issue in this case is I think they've bit off a little bit more than they can chew. And that's that's not a derogatory slam against their DA's office. It's, it's this is not the case that you would go to the mattresses on uh, from a legal b- battle. I mean. They're going to have legal arguments on this one that may get it caused to be a dismissal based on just litigation before it right. even gets to a jury. And and one of now we have a new prosecutor who is, who's going to have to be uh, brought in. So, yeah, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, um, Franz, thank you so much for coming on this week. This was a f- fantastic conversation. Where can people find out more about you? So social media, Borkhart Law Firm, that's B-O-R-G-H-A-R-D-T, Borkhart Law or Borkhart Law Firm on Twitter, uh, Instagram, and then BorkhartLawFirm.com. And then every Friday for Fridays with Franz at 4 p.m. Central on Core TV. Fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And please check out my website at joshuaritter.com. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. 
And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.